Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. God, our Father, we stand in awe of you today. We come as poor, broken sinners into this place of worship and praise because you have invited us here through your son Jesus we stand in all that you would call us your enemies to be your friends to be your children we stand in awe of the beauty of the gospel that brings us to your throne today. So now help us, Father, as we continue in your presence in this service, that we might hear from your word, that we might hear your voice, that we might sit at your feet and listen as you teach us by your Holy Spirit. Open our hearts and our minds and our ears to receive what you have for us here in your infallible, inerrant, and inspired word. Thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. As you are being seated, open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to be in the first 13 verses here today. Last week, we talked about different complementary roles that God has assigned to men and women in the home and in the church. Different, but complementary. Equal in dignity, equal in value, but different by design. And this week, we're going to talk about something very similar, not with men and women, but offices within the church. And when it comes to offices, and I'm not talking about the church offices over there, but offices that people hold, the Bible really only gives us two biblical offices within the church. We love our committees, we love our teachers and Sunday school teachers and everyone that helps out with everything, but the Bible really gives us two prescribed, commanded offices. Number one is that of overseer. Overseer is not the word we use, though that would be cool, wouldn't it? If you saw me in the hallway, good morning, overseer. Good morning, overseer Zane. Good morning, overseer Matt. Don't, don't do that. Uh, other biblical words are elder, bishop, pastor. I guess if I, I, I went charismatic and used my handheld mic all the time, you could call me Bishop, bishop Price. And then number two, the office of deacon, which just means servant. So two primary roles, elder, bishop, overseer, which we call pastor, and then our deacons, two primary biblical offices. The office of elder, overseer, and pastor are those who serve, listen, serve by leadership. 
particularly in spiritual and pastoral shepherding matters. Okay? Those who serve by leadership in spiritual matters of the church and church members. Deacons are those who lead by serving. You get that? The, the pastors serve by leading. Deacons lead by serving the material, everyday needs of the church and its members, financial, administrative, physical, and so on. That biblical word pastor, that's what we use in your bulletin. You'll see pastor, pastor, pastor. That's what we call ourselves, and that's fine. There are lots of biblical words for this one office. One of those words I mentioned earlier was the word elder. The Greek word for elder is, is presbyteros, and you might see in that word where we get our word presbyterian. Presbyterian churches, not solely, but have historically had elders, ruling and teaching elders, a multiplicity of pastors. Might be a good model for us to think about, multiple pastors, as we have Zane and Matt and myself. Presbyteros, elders. Another word we see in the Bible is that of overseer or bishop. The Greek word we get from that is episkopos. If you look at that word, you see the word we, we have in English, episcopalian. And if there's an Episcopal system of government, it means there are bishops and overseers and archbishops. There are other authorities over that local church that they call bishops. Episcopos, if you just look at the word, epi just means over, and skopos, you think of like a scope, to look, to look over, to oversee. The word we choose to use, and I love this word, is the word pastor. The Greek word is poimen, which just means shepherd. If you like classical music, you'll know that a pastoral symphony is a symphony that's meant to evoke images of farm life, agrarian life, life out in the fields with the cows and the sheep and the goats and the ducks. And I'm singing a song now from somewhere. I don't know what it is. But that, that's that word, that pastoral shepherding office we call pastor. That's all different words for the same office, the office of pastor, overseer, bishop, elder. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, Paul's talking about the gifts that God gives to the church. And he says he gave the apostles and the prophets, that's the foundation. And now he gives the evangelists, the pastors, the shepherds, and teachers. And there's a lot of ink being spilt and commentaries over whether or not those are two different offices, shepherd, teacher. Uh, most agree that they're one office, the shepherd, teacher, the teacher, shepherd. That's the pastor. In Titus chapter 1, verse 5, we see Paul telling another young pastor, Titus, just like he writes to Timothy, a young pastor, he writes to Titus, and he says, I want you to appoint elders in the church. Notice the plurality, elders, not just one guy to bear all the burden, but multiple elders, multiple pastors. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Paul is addressing the elders at the church of Ephesus. And he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock. There's that picture of shepherd. It's, it's noted that he's talking to elders, but he uses the imagery of shepherd for them. That's the, the office of pastor. This is the same thing. Teaching, overseeing, caring. And I might point out to you that the biblical model is a plurality of elders, a plurality of pastors. How many headaches in the local church, how many church splits, how many church conflicts, how much ugliness can be avoided if instead of us vesting all the power and all the authority in one man, the pastor, we invest that authority in multiple pastors, multiple elders and shepherds. We have that gift here through Pastor Zane and Pastor Matt 
and myself, God willing, we can add more lay pastors, lay elders to come alongside of us and shepherd and lead the flock of God in that way. How about the word deacon? Where do we get that word from? This is an easier one. The Greek word is diakon, and it just means a servant. And it's an interesting little word sturdy, sturdy, little word sturdy. I've already started. I can't look at my wife now. It's an interesting word study because when you look at where we get this word diakon, servant, it literally refers to someone kicking up dust. And, and you might picture someone just kind of standing doing nothing, just kind of kicking up dust. That's not what it means. If you can imagine a cartoon character like Wile E. Coyote chasing the roadrunner, the roadrunner running away, as they go quickly, you know, in the cartoon, what's left behind them? That little trail of dust, the smoke that says they're going somewhere, they're doing something. That's the picture we have of a deacon in the Bible. Someone who's running here and there, literally as if waiting on tables, kicking up dust. I think that's interesting because in Acts chapter 6, verse 4, we see them doing exactly that. Remember, the conflict was some were getting the food and some were not. Some were getting their needs met and some were not in the congregation. And the apostle said, okay, get some men, get some servants to do this. We cannot stop preaching and teaching the word to wait on tables. And they weren't saying that was beneath them. They were just saying, this is what we've been called to do. We got to devote ourselves to the teaching and preaching of the word. We got 3,000 new believers here. We need to get to work teaching them with us, just us 12. So we kind of need some help doing the other stuff. So that picture, the first picture we see of the office of deacon is those literally waiting on tables and serving the church in that way. Like men and women and their complementary roles, these offices have complementary roles within the church. And that's a good thing. They're different. They're not the same, but they're both necessary and needed equally. And Paul wanting the church to be in order gives these qualifications, we've come to call them. Qualifications for what it means to be a pastor, what it means to be a deacon, and for good reason. You say, why put limits on it, Paul? Why are there so many rules? Why qualifications? If someone wants to serve, can't they just serve? Can't they just do this and can't they just do that? And Paul says, no. The Holy Spirit says no. Why? Because of the reputation of the gospel. And so as we look at today's text, we see servant leaders and leading servants. Wonderful phrase to describe these two offices. It's not original to me. I think it came from the Christ-centered commentary on 1 Timothy. But servant leaders and leading servants who shine as examples of Jesus to the church and the world. And that's why we have these qualifications. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. Here's another one. We talked about those trustworthy sayings. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. 
Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Amen. It's a fitting day for this message, and uh, I can't remember if I planned it out this way or not, but today is the final day for you to nominate deacons. We've had a a few come in, uh, one come in, and so if you, you, you have someone on your mind as we listen to this sermon today, you see these qualifications, someone the Lord plants on your, your mind, uh, fill out a form back there and nominate that man, that brother, to, to, this, to the office of deacon. And uh, today's the last day to get those turned in. We'll consider them, we'll bring them before the other deacons, and then eventually before the church to approve. So think about that as we go through this today. Number one in these qualifications, we see witnesses to the world. Number one, witnesses to the world. The office of pastor and overseer is something that you can seek out. It says if anyone aspires to be an overseer, that means someone's got to want to do it. The office of pastor and the person of a pastor doesn't just show up magically. You on search committees in the past know they don't just show up at your door ready to go. That has to be sought after. It can be aspired to. It's not just magically there. It has to be aspired to. Someone has to be called, gifted by God for this kind of ministry. When we talk about the call to ministry, we really got to talk about two different sides of that call. The first part of that call is the inward call. And as you can tell, that means within oneself, you have to desire, you have to have the passion, you have to understand yourself to have at least some form of that gift to serve in that capacity. That's someone saying, I feel called of God to do blank. That's the inward or the inner call. The outer or the outward call not, doesn't come from the person. It comes from the church. It comes from the other leaders in the church that see those gifts, that see those passions, that see these qualifications and say, yes, your inward call matches with this outward call and this affirmation by the church body that you're called into this. Uh, And that's really where these qualifications come from. Paul says, someone wants to be a pastor? That's great. Let's start talking about how we affirm that call to be a pastor. Someone wants to be a deacon? That's fantastic. Now let's talk about what it means to be a deacon. So that their inward call and draw to that ministry might be matched by the outward draw into that ministry. Both are important, and these qualifications will govern both offices. In verses 1 and 8, we're going to kind of bounce back and forth. You can tell by the point verses, because they're two lists that say basically the same thing. So we're going to kind of be looking at both. In verse 1, it says, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. And then down in verse 8, deacons likewise. So what we see here is Paul saying this is how you can tell if a person is qualified, an overseer or a deacon, ultimately for the good order and health of the church. Also notice these bookends in verses 2 and 7. 
Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. Look over in verse 7. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders. That's two ways of saying the same thing about an elder or a pastor. They must be above reproach, and they must be well thought of by outsiders. And that's what all of these qualifications are really going to point to those two central ideas. This idea of our public witness, our reputation, how we carry ourselves. All of these are pointing really to that central idea that someone must be above reproach and they must be well thought of. Now, above reproach means blameless, but that does not mean sinless. It does not mean perfect. What it does mean is that these people are above any serious, public, legitimate scorn. They are not criminals, and they're not in disrepute with their church family or their community. So not perfect, not sinless, that would disqualify all of us, but above reproach. No one can bring a legitimate charge against them. Okay. In verses 2 through 3, we begin to see this list enumerated for us, starting in verse 2. They must be above reproach, and now we see what that means. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, and not a lover of money. Now, as you go through that list, you see sober-minded. Now, that can refer to alcohol and drunkenness. We get to that later. Because Paul repeats that qualification, it makes me think that he's saying something else here. Sober-minded means to be watchful, to be alert, watchful of oneself, watchful of how we conduct ourselves in public and in the church body. Sober-minded, awake, alert, watchful, self-controlled, of sound mind, an awareness of oneself, an awareness of one's weaknesses, an awareness of one's strengths, and an awareness of what we need from each other and from God. Self-controlled. He says you got to be respectable. Respectable doesn't just mean respected, though that's included. It means orderly, decent, modest. Last week we talked about this with, with the apparel for women, right? With what is respectable, orderly, decent, modest, with shame. That should be how a man of God conducts himself. Not a drunkard. Directly dealing with alcohol here, I think that's why this is separated from sober-mindedness. Not a drunkard. Now, I'm going to make some of you very happy, and I'm going to make some of you very mad. Okay, so that's, that's fun. It would be fun to raise our hands and see who's mad and who's happy. This is not a condemnation of the use of alcohol. Nobody say amen. And nobody say oh me. This is, this is not that. What it says is what it says. And so we as pastors and we as deacons do not put qualifications on people that God has not put on them. What it says is not a drunkard. And remember, within the category of public witness, that's really what Paul has. And not that it's okay to just be drunk in your closet somewhere either, but it's certainly not okay to go out and engage in what the Bible would call licentiousness, or license to sin, bringing disrepute to yourself, to your family, to where people say, I don't know about that guy, he's a drunk, he's a drunkard, he drinks a whole lot and makes a fool of himself. That's what Paul has in mind. 
Second one is, so the next is not violent. Literally, not a striker, not a brawler. And it's interesting that those two go together, right? Not a drunkard, not a brawler. Don't, don't go out engaging in drunkenness and just beating up people at the bar, okay? That, these are disqualifications from this office. Not violent, but gentle. It's interesting that he gives the opposite there, isn't it? Not violent, but gentle, mild, patient, understanding. And that goes in hand with this last one here, last one here, not quarrelsome, not looking for a fight, not picking fights, not ready to argue at the drop of a hat, but peaceful. Now, I wonder if you see an overarching theme here in these qualifications. If I could just slap one word on it, it would be temperance. Temperance, control, control of one's mind, control of one's behavior, control of one's emotions, of one's spirit, and yes, control of one's mouth. Remember last week as Paul showed us what it means to be godly men in the church and in the home, where did he start? With prayer. Pray, men, without quarreling, without fighting. That's where Paul starts with godly manhood. And it's interesting, that's where Paul goes also with what it means to be a godly pastor and a godly deacon. Contrasting what the world says is manliness, pure brute strength, the alpha male ego thing, versus what God says Mildness, gentleness, self-control. In verses 8 and 11, we see a a general, the same idea for deacons. Look at verse 8. Deacons, likewise, so saying in the same way, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. And down in verse 11, Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded and faithful in all things. We we might be tempted to see differences here, but it's really Paul saying the exact same thing, maybe just in a different way. When he says dignified, that goes back to respectable, someone who is honorable or serious, someone who is taken seriously and takes the gospel seriously, someone who is dignified. Not given to much wine, that goes back to not being a drunkard. And I would, I would even say, if I could just say it this way, not, not given to a little wine in terms of being addicted, controlled by that. Okay, and again, this is not a prohibition of the use altogether, in my opinion. Paul says, not a drunkard and not addicted or giving yourself to much wine. The prohibition on all of these things seems to go back to that same word, temperance. How you carry yourself, how you control your emotions and your spirit and your anger. In verse 11, Paul deals with wives. Now, there's a lot of ink spilled here, too, over whether Paul means women, because this word could mean just women. And so people have said maybe this is a door for women serving as deacons because he addresses these deacons and then says women. In this context for today, we're going to assume that it means wives, deacons, wives. There's a lot of good reason for that later in the verse. We read about husbands and wives and marriage. Seems to fit within that context. That's what Paul is referring to. 
And so it's interesting that these qualifications don't just apply to deacons. But these qualifications apply to deacons' wives because they are serving alongside of their husband in this ministry. This isn't just the man is called out, there you go, but because he must manage his own household well, because he's got to have his stuff in order, there's also qualifications for their wives. Look at verse 11. Dignified, there's that word again, not slanderers, but sober-minded and faithful in all things. Notice that repetition, dignified, sober-minded. Again, what we see, self-control, temperance, how you carry yourself, how you conduct yourself. Ladies, wives of deacons, not mean, not quarrelsome, not, again, looking to pick a fight, but peaceful, gentle, respectful. So the question as we begin this is kind of how much, why, why so much ink spilled by Paul on these qualifications? Why say this thing for pastors and then repeat nearly the same list for deacons? Why not just kind of cover it all? Why say it twice, Paul? I think Paul would have us remember what we're in this for. To remember the gospel we preach. That God in love sends his son to die for sinners. God in love and grace and mercy sends his son to die for sinners. Those who deserve his wrath, those who deserve his condemnation, yet he extends mercy and grace and peace. And so the question for us pastors, the questions for you deacons and prospective deacons is, is that the gospel that you are representing with your life? question for all of us as Christians, just church members, is that the gospel you're representing with your life? We could say it in a kitschy way and ask, does your walk match your talk? Are you gentle? Are you loving? Are you patient? Fellow pastors and deacons, think about your public witness and ask, does this describe me? Would I categorize myself? Would others say, They're above reproach. Not perfect, not sinless, but above reproach. Does temperance define you, self-control? Or do you find yourself being unnecessarily combative and arrogant? All believers, isn't this just the fruit of the Spirit for all of us? I mean, really, these are qualifications, expectations for these men. But aren't they expectations for all of us? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Aren't, isn't that just the, the regular old fruit of the Spirit in the life of the believer? There's more here in the area of public witness, too. In verses 2 and 3, we see that an elder must be hospitable. This deals with generosity. They must be hospitable, and they must not be a lover of money. In verse 8, we see the parallel for deacons, that deacons should not be greedy. All of this points to generosity. Hospitality, speaking of physical kindness to those who you know and those you don't know. Opening your heart, opening your home for the needs of others. That should define a pastor. That should define a deacon. Being identified as a giving, generous, merciful person. 
I like how Paul kind of shows us the positive, be hospitable. But there's also the negative, not a lover of money, not greedy, not holding back in your giving. Listen, not holding back in your giving in your homes and in the church. As we talk about giving as a church body, it is incumbent upon all of us as church members to give to the work of the ministry through our tithes, our offerings. It's especially expected of those who will serve as pastors and those who will serve as deacons. Again, let's think about the gospel. Why why is this so important? Think about the gospel, that God, in sacrificial love, gives his son, gives his son to the least deserving, his enemies, so that his enemies might be welcomed in as his children at his table. There is a giving, generous, hospitable God revealed to us in the gospel. And if that's the God we represent, and that's the gospel that we preach, ought that not be, ought that not to be the way that we conduct ourselves? Pastors, deacons, church members, giving, hospitable, generous. Or do you find yourself, deacons, pastors, to be stingy, closed off? Your wallet's closed, your home closed, your heart closed, arrogant. Does that fit the gospel that we preach? A final category in this area of public witness is that of integrity. In verses 8 and 11, verses eight, verse 8, he says, not double-tongued. And then later in verse 11, though this is dealing with wives, but I think it applies, not slanderers. Dealing with the things we say to other people. Double-tongued, if you just think about it, like a, a, a snake's tongue. Deceiving. Saying one thing and doing another. Being a hypocrite. And then slandering, which is backbiting and gossiping. Spreading falsehood about other people. Paul says here in verse 11 that deacons' wives, and I think all of us, must be Faithful. Or just means trustworthy. Someone can confide in you. Someone can depend on you. Someone can give something to you and expect it to be kept safe. Expect you to do what you're supposed to do with it. I think it's interesting, interesting that in this category of personal integrity, Paul goes twice at what we say. Twice at the tongue. James chapter 3 verse 6 tells us that the tongue is a little burning fire within our mouths. And how small that spark is, how small that flame is, but with it, we can start a wildfire. And Paul says, watch out for that because it will destroy churches and it will destroy people. Again, let's think about the gospel that we're called to represent. God speaking a true word through his son, Jesus Christ, who gives us a word that is infallible and inerrant and trustworthy, God himself who is truth and who is light. And the question for us is, is that the gospel that we're representing with our lives, with our words, with our dealings with other people? Or would someone say you are not dependable, you are not trustworthy, you are a backbiter, you're a gossip, you're a slanderer? 
May it never be so. For us Christians, but also especially for us pastors and deacons. Paul is careful about our public witness. And we must be as well for the sake of the gospel. Now I'm going to turn my page. I'm more than halfway through the sermon. I know all of y'all look for this right here. Bear with me. We'll go through this last part quickly. So public witness, how we carry ourselves in public, how we present the gospel. Listen, how we present our church to other people. Think about that. Think about pastors, deacons, your interactions in public, in your workplace, uh, just buying lunch, going to a restaurant, pastors and deacons, but all Christians, members of First Baptist Church, you go there, you're ugly, you complain, you're bitter, you're angry, you don't tip well, and someone says, hey, they go to First Baptist Church. Immediately, something negative is sparked about First Baptist Church. Something negative is sparked about Jesus the gospel, and all those Christians, hypocrites, should never be said of us as pastors or deacons or Christians in general. Number two, keepers of their homes. Paul moves from this outward sphere of public to the private personal home life of the deacon and the pastor. An overseer must be above reproach in verse two, the husband of one wife. In verse 12, we see that same thing repeated. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife. Now, this is the most glaring home qualification. It might also be the most controversial home qualification. Is Paul talking about polygamy? And polygamy was some widespread practice in the first century, and if you're going to do this, you can't do that. I don't think there's a lot of evidence that supports that interpretation. Is he talking about divorce? That divorce just outright disqualifies someone from serving in the office in the church. Is he disqualifying single men? Is he disqual- you got to be married, it says. Husband of one wife, is that a qualification or is it not? I would say today that the answer is somewhere in the middle of all of those answers. The, the literal translation of husband of one wife is man of one woman. Or you might have heard it said, a one-woman man. <laughs> and I think that more gets to the definition here because Paul is not just talking about marriage or this or that. He's talking in general about sexual immorality. And that sexual immorality, engaging in that outside of the bounds of marriage, is a disqualification for a serving officer. Now, if we spend just a minute on divorce, we must ask, Was the divorce biblical? Jesus does allow for divorce in the case of sexual infidelity. That one flesh bond has been broken, Jesus says, and although it is grievous to God, he allows divorce in that scenario because that bond has already been broken by the unfaithful person. Paul kind of lengthens that to abandonment, which would probably entail sexual immorality, if we're honest. But is the divorce biblical? When did the divorce happen? Before conversion, after conversion. What were the circumstances? What has been this person's life since then? How have they grown? How have they changed? What's going on? Those are all conversations you must have about this verse. You cannot just slap this verse and say, that's what it means. No divorce. No nothing. Wisdom, discernment, the leadership of the Holy Spirit must be there in those times. 
I think it goes further when Paul in verse 4 and verse 12 talks about elders. Verse 4, they must manage their own household well. Verse 12, manage their children, manage their families. Both elders and deacons are under this qualification to manage their homes well. Their marriage, their family. This quote, I don't know if I actually put the quote up there. Just listen from the NIV Study Bible. A leader who is not a catalyst for proper, orderly godliness within his own home. A leader who is not a catalyst for orderly godliness within his own home and family does not inspire the confidence needed to teach and guide other households, making up a particular congregation. And then the question follows in verse 5. If they're not the spiritual leaders of their home, if they're not serving God first and foremost in their home, if they're not leading their wives to serve God and their children to serve God, how can they, verse 5, care for the church of God if they don't even care for their own homes, if they don't love their wives rightly, if they refuse to discipline their children, if they refuse to be the spiritual leader of their home and to set the priorities of their home with God first, if they won't do that, why do we call them to serve in our churches and expect them to do that here with us if they're not doing it in the little church God gave them in their own house? If they're married, are they faithful? Are they pure? Are they holy? If they're parents, are they spiritual leaders in their homes for their children? Are they disciplining their children? If they're single, are they pure? Are they holy? Are they saving themselves for a godly marriage? All of this goes back to that central command. They must be above reproach. In the marriage, in family, sexuality, in public, in the home. Pastors and deacons, I wonder if you find yourselves looking at these qualifications, fighting for holiness and purity and godliness. Yes, but maybe you feel tension. Maybe some of these jump out and grab you, pastors or deacons, and you say, man, this is something I need to work on. I need to grow in my sanctification. Perhaps today we read these and we see disqualifications. Deacons and pastors, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Self-sacrificing, spiritual leadership, purity, and faithfulness. Pastors and deacons, love your children by spurring them on to godliness, exemplifying the love of Christ, protecting them, leading them, worshiping with them. It's a message for all of us, but it's an expectation for our leaders. Number three, tested and approved. In verse six, when it comes to the office of pastor, it says they must not be a recent convert. And it doesn't say this for deacons. It's wise, I think, but it doesn't say that as a qualification for deacons. Not a recent convert. You see, someone can come to the faith, can get saved, and, and grow exponentially very quickly. I've seen it. I've seen kids when I was a youth pastor get saved, baptized, and it takes them years to start maturing spiritually. Some of us are the same way. I saw some get saved, join the church, and immediately begin to grow and mature in their knowledge of the faith and in godliness. 
And it would be easy for us to see people like that in our churches and say, man, they just got saved, but they're ready to serve. They already know the Bible. They already know this. They already know that. And Paul says, no, 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 wait, wait a minute now. Take care of them by not doing that to them. Not a recent convert, Paul says, because they may become puffed up with conceit and fall into a condemnation of the devil. They might become enlarged in their egos and lording their theological knowledge, their biblical knowledge over other people or their growth and holiness over other people. And so fall, Paul says, into a snare of the devil. Should not be a recent convert. In verse 10... This simple qualification for deacons says, let them be tested. And after testing, let them serve. Test them by what? Test them by these qualifications. Pastors, here are the qualifications. Deacons, here are the qualifications. Church, here's the criteria. And as you're filling out the form and putting someone's name in, or maybe you're the person that was nominated and you're saying, I've got to look through these qualifications. These are the criteria. This is what we must meet. These are not entry-level positions in the church, pastor, deacon. This isn't just whoever will do it. Well, we need a pastor, so uh, whoever's willing, we'll just, do, we'll just have it. We need some more deacons. We need some more teachers. Let's just go ahead and plug in whoever will do it. The Bible says, no. Are you crazy? That's disastrous for them. It's disastrous for the church. Let them be tested according to God's word, and then approved. Verse 13, Paul says, For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Church, serving as a pastor, serving as a deacon is grueling, intense spiritual warfare. It ought to be a labor. But it is a labor with great reward, both with God and with men. And so, church, I charge you today, when God blesses you with godly, qualified leaders, when God blesses you, as he has here, with godly, qualified leaders that have been tested and approved, church, honor them. Submit to them. Bless them. Pray for them. Lastly, very quickly, I promise, number four, servants of the faith. I can make promises all day long, can I? They must be above reproach, husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled. Look at the end of verse two, though, for elders. Able to teach. Why do we submit to such people? Why does Hebrews 13, 17 say, honor your leaders, submit to them, obey them? Why? Because it says they are keeping watch over your very souls. The pastors are overseeing not just the affairs of the church, not just the in and out ministries of this local body, but we are called to oversee your very souls. Deacons, likewise, you're called not just to serve the finances and not just to serve doing nice things for people. Those are, those are the qualifications. Deacons, you are called, the Bible says, to care for the household of God. This is heavy. This is weighty. And it's honorable. 
It says of elders in a unique way that it does not say for deacons that elders ought to be able to teach. They ought to be not just familiar with the faith and familiar with the Bible, but able to communicate it. This does not mean seminary trained. It does not mean you have to go to Bible college to be a pastor or an elder. It just means that you need to not only know the faith, but be able, able, not even talking about whether you do it well or not, but able to teach the faith. Deacons, it's worth noting, though, that you're not exempt from this. In verse 9, it says, you must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. You might not be gifted to teach or to preach it. You might not feel that that's your calling. Some deacons do, some deacons don't. It's not a qualification for you like it is for elders. But you must, it says, hold the faith with a clear conscience. This means that the doctrines of the Bible... The confession of faith that we hold to, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, the inerrant word of God that we have here, the infallible rule of faith and practice. Deacons, you must hold it. Literally, you must take it up and you must wear it in all aspects of life. Not just for the sake of your service to this church, but for the sake of truth itself. Leaders of First Baptist Church, talking to myself and our two other pastors and our deacons, does this describe you? Are you able to articulate and defend the faith, the scriptures? Deacons, pastors, do you want your church body, do you want your family, your wife, your children to grow into a knowledge of the truth and grow in their holiness? Church member, what about you? Where are your priorities? Do you have a love for truth? Do you have a love for the word? Do you have a love for God? Pastors and deacons, you're called to serve the church, not just as a job or a slot to fill or just to keep the thing going. Pastors and deacons, you're called to serve the church because it is the very household of God, the body of Christ, the bride of God. Of Christ, not a social club, not a cultural center, but what Paul says is the pillar and buttress of truth in a dying world. And my question for you, deacons, active, emeritus, inactive, prospective, my question for you, pastors, for myself, is do you pledge yourself anew to this today? We're going to stand and we're going to sing in a moment. And rather than standing and singing with you, I'm going to invite you, as I do, pastors and deacons, I'm going to invite you to kneel with me as we commit ourselves afresh to these qualifications. Not because there's anything magical in these steps. This is no altar. These are just steps. But I want our church body to see us, deacons and pastors, Commit ourselves to this. And then church members, if you want to commit yourselves afresh to the Lord, to these very qualifications and expectations that are for you too, you're welcome to join us and to pray. Families, as we sing and we kneel as pastors and deacons, you're welcome to come pray with us, pray for us. Other church members, you're welcome to find a deacon or a pastor, your favorites or your not favorites, and lay hands on them and pray for them too. Let's pray and then we're going to stand and sing and commit ourselves to the Lord in that way. 
Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for the conviction that it brings to our lives as pastors and deacons, people who are called to be men of God and teachers and leaders in the world. In the church, we ask that you would bless us today as we pray and we give ourselves to you, that we might be examples for our church body. We might commit ourselves afresh to these qualifications and what it means to be a leader in your household. God, overwhelm us with a sense of this duty, a sense of this calling, and this privilege and honor that we have to serve you and to serve this body together. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.